Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? It's Monday. It is July 13th. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. The show is made possible by people like David and Gary. NC and Luella, Keith, Cheryl, Brian, Alan, Jim, and Robbie, and Rebecca, and Taylor. I appreciate all of the support. I couldn't do it without you. Uh, I was actually um, just looking at the website over here for Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com, and I was not aware, even after I've done uh, you know so many uh, ads uh, with Mattress Man, I wasn't aware all of the features that their adjustable beds have. I was just looking through this. The tech side of this, it's amazing. So you can get an adjustable bed, right? The base, you can either do, you can shop by size. So you can get the twin, twin extra long. You can get full size, queen size, king size, split kings, California kings, split California kings. So they have all the sizes. But the features on these things, like wireless remotes, massage, Zero gravity, wall hugger, lumbar adjustment, Bluetooth, USB charging ports, right? Like, that's brilliant to have a USB charging port uh, port in the adjustable base of your bed. That is awesome, right? Like, I had to construct, like, seven different um, uh, extension cords plugged into a power strip uh, that, that snakes all the way around behind the, the, the bed and... Like I had to create is basically a fire hazard, right? In order to charge my phone <laughs> next to my bed. Well, you know, so I can play, uh, you know, words with friends and such while I am uh, trying to go to sleep. That's all. I'm just kidding. I don't even play words with friends. Christy does. Um, I do like the Fallout Shelter uh, game. That's 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 pretty good. But no, mainly it's just for perusing Twitter. Anyway. Um, those are some of the uh, some of the features you can get with the adjustable bases. Go over to mattressmanstores.com and I think you'll learn even if you've been there before you're going to learn something new just like I did today, okay? Um so head on over mattressmanstores.com or if you prefer go into one of the stores, four of them locally, Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville and let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed for you. They do the social distancing, they do the uh, sanitizing of uh, the register and the card reader and they've got the masks and they got single-use pillowcases. So they are taking all of the necessary precautions. They have five-star delivery service, a 120-day comfort guarantee and they do ship nationwide, okay? Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local and sleep better. So this weekend, uh, New York City reported, for the first time since the pandemic hit, no deaths from COVID-19. And that's a good thing. That is a very good thing. No deaths from COVID-19. New York City, I should say, on Sunday, reported zero new coronavirus deaths for the first time since early March, a milestone that comes as the virus spikes in other parts of the country. And we in the media use those data to attack those GOP governors, unlike in New York uh, State and New York City, where 
the leadership there are Democrats. And so, of course, it was a fantastic response that they've engaged in. Right. Uh, so Valerie Jarrett, remember Valerie Jarrett, the former advisor to President Barack Obama? Um, she tweeted out this this story and she says that, quote, from the epicenter to zero deaths, short term sacrifice saves lives. Short term sacrifice. What, 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 what exactly would be that short term sacrifice? Was it the sacrifice of the 6000 plus nursing home patients? That sacrifice, you mean? Or were you talking about like masks or something? You're talking about masks, social distancing, washing your hands. Are you talking about the three W's? Wasn't really clear from her tweet. Uh, but, I mean, yes, she's celebrating the uh, Democratic governor's uh, awesome response. If you just let enough people die, eventually the virus uh, burns itself out. It's amazing how that happens. It's like a forest fire, really. Like you set the whole forest on fire, and then after it burns through everything, then there's no fuel left for the virus or for the fire, rather, to um, continue burning. And so then it goes out. And so all hail those who let the fire burn uncontrollably because now the fire's out. I, I mean, yes, we lost like the equivalent of the state of Montana in trees and forest. And you know, maybe a lot of people died in the process. But good news is the fire is out, right? No more forest fire. Can't we just look at the silver lining here? Jennifer Rubin, who I cannot believe they still consider her and label her the conservative opinion writer at the Washington Post, which tells you all you need to know about the Washington Post, that they think this woman, Jennifer Rubin, is a conservative. She may have been at one point. She hasn't been for, gosh, a decade, as far as I can tell. She has, she has not been a conservative. She does not espouse conservative views. So I'm not sure how, like, she's like, oh, I'm a conservative writer, a conservative opinion writer, but I don't write conservative opinions, you see. <laughs> it's just, writer is just my job. I, I, you know, I, I just, I write opinions, but they're not conservative opinions. But I am a conservative opinion writer. See what I mean? It's like conservative comma opinion writer. It's not, <laughs> it's not that she's writing conservative opinions. Anyway, she said... She took this same story. She tweets it out and says, New York City reports zero COVID-19 deaths for the first time since pandemic hit. This is what competent government can accomplish. Competent government. Just let it all burn. That's competence. Look at that. Gosh, Governor Cuomo is fantastic. Oh, my gosh. He's a Democrat. We love him. The city has reported a total of 215,000 cases and 18,670 confirmed deaths. So almost 19,000 deaths in New York City, according to data that was updated on Sunday afternoon. The city hit its peak in terms of confirmed daily deaths back in April when they had just under 600 deaths in a single day. And uh, as New York and other parts of the Northeast make progress on containing the outbreak there, the virus has surged in other parts of the U.S., mainly in the South and the West, where Republicans govern. And so they're responsible for all of that. Remember that story we brought to you a couple of months ago that uh, COVID-19 was essentially seeded throughout America by New Yorkers? Do you remember that? 
they they did yeah they did uh contact tracing and analysis based on like the subway system and they found like that was the super spreader and uh they found all the, like the deaths in the nursing homes and such and we're going to get to that in a second but uh deaths in all the nursing homes in New York but then people leaving New York traveling out of New York and and arriving in other states they then seeded the virus in other parts of the country so uh thanks for that New York we appreciate it New York governor Andrew Cuomo a Democrat, warned on Friday that the spikes in other parts of the country could lead to the virus once again increasing in New York. He said, quote, you're going to see our numbers and the Northeast numbers probably start to increase because the virus that you see now in the South and the West, California has real trouble. It's going to come back here, he said in a radio interview. That's my best to Cuomo. It's really weird, like how difficult... Uh, it is for me to to pick back up the New York accent. Uh, he said, quote, it is going to come back here. It's it's like being on a merry-go-round. It's totally predictable, and we're going to go through an increase. I can feel it coming, and it is so unnecessary and so cruel. Would that be cruel, like forcing infected patients into nursing homes so they spread the virus to the most vulnerable, elderly, and sick? Like, like that kind of cruel? Or... A different kind of cruel. I'm just trying to gauge the the cruelty level here of the virus. Um, NBC reported, by the way, that story was from thehill.com by Rebecca Clark. And uh, then NBC has a story on this by Jennifer Peltz, Michael Sysak, and Marina Villanueva. Uh, They say, as the coronavirus rages out of control in other parts of the United States, is anybody aware of where the virus is not out of control? Is it? Is somebody controlling the virus? Really? Because I don't I don't see it as controlling the virus. The virus is doing what it's doing. People are minimizing impact, but nobody's really controlling it. But anyway, um, New York is offering an example after taming the nation's deadliest outbreak this spring. They're crediting Cuomo and New York. They're crediting de Blasio. They're crediting these Democratic politicians in New York um, as uh, being able to tame the nation's deadliest outbreak, while also trying to prepare in case another surge comes. New York's early experience is a ready-made blueprint for other states now finding themselves swamped by the disease, a ready-made blueprint. Like, for example, if you have a subway system, you might want to disinfect it rather than waiting two, three, four months after the virus uh, completely, you know, rips through the entire subway system, creating a a super spreader vehicle uh, that makes stops in every community. Like, you might want to disinfect the trains if you have them, you know, if you've got a subway system, if you have mass transit, might want to consider doing that. I mean, look, who could have known that that would have been a step to take? New York had to learn the hard way, but thank goodness they did, because now we can all learn from then that you might want to disinfect, like, these these uh, tubes where everybody uh, piles in together and breathes in each other's lung juices and then gets off and brings all of the virus uh, throughout all of their neighborhoods and such. So uh, New York's early experience, definitely helping us all out, right? It could also come in handy at home as the region up there readies for potential uh, a potential second wave of the infection that experts predict will likely come at some point. Governor Andrew Cuomo has offered advice. He's offered ventilators, masks and gowns and medicine to states dealing with spikes in cases and hospitalizations and in some cases rising deaths. 
Some healthcare workers are heading to other states to help fight the virus there, reciprocating the influx that gave New York hospitals some much-needed relief just months ago. Oh, so I see. So the blueprint that New York is providing right now is basically what other states did for New York. So wouldn't the other states have been doing the blueprint drafting? I just it seems logical to me. Anyway, at the same time, the Democratic governor has ordered travelers from more than a dozen states to quarantine for 14 days, North Carolina included, while urging New Yorkers not to let up on wearing masks and social distancing. Okay, um, some of the prep that they're doing, PPE, masks, gowns, other stuff, got to have a 90 day supply on hand. Uh, that's what they're telling all of the hospitals and healthcare workers and stuff. Uh, they're prepped for the uh, second wave. New York's nursing homes, which lost more than 6,400 residents to the virus out of 18,000 in total in the state, uh, have set up wings to separate infected residents. They're now required to test staffers weekly and have at least a two-month supply of protective gear. They're no longer accepting recovering COVID-19 patients from hospitals, as the state initially directed them to do. Remember, they admitted more than 6,300 patients after Cuomo reversed the policy under pressure May 10th, or sorry, before Cuomo reversed the policy. So Andrew Cuomo, remember, wrote wrote this policy and directed nursing homes to take elderly patients out of hospitals, bring them back to the uh, nursing homes, even if they are COVID-19 positive. And uh, as they are recovering, quote unquote, even when we didn't know how long these people are still contagious. Right. So they bring all the people back. Sixty three hundred of the uh, of them, they admitted, and sixty four hundred residents died. So it's almost a one to one ratio there. Right. Almost. So about this policy, Andrew Cuomo who I know was like the best governor in the entire country because of his handling of the coronavirus response, right? I mean, so far, I mean, I've highlighted the brilliance of his responses, right? And uh, Mayor de Blasio as well in New York City. They really are just fantastic uh, from, you know, encouraging people to go out to the Chinese New Year celebrations and uh, then the obviously the the super spreader subways and the, uh, the COVID patients into nursing home policy, right? There's just so many things they did so well. Really made us a blueprint. Really made us a blueprint. Um, Andrew Cuomo, good news, he investigated Andrew Cuomo. And you're never going to guess what happened, right? He found that his nursing home policy was, was perfectly fine. Didn't even have any impact whatsoever. So Cuomo has cleared Cuomo So uh, I'm sure we can all rest easy. Huzzah for Cuomo. Over at redstate.com, Bonchi writes, quote, I've got news. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has conducted a thorough investigation of himself and found that sticking COVID-19 patients back into nursing homes had nothing to do with the mass carnage in those facilities. It was, according to his report, quote, other factors that led to the thousands of deaths in his state that did not occur in places like Florida and Texas at the same time. Como administration says that its policy was not a significant factor. That is a direct quote from the report. Not a significant factor. The 33-page review by the state health department instead blamed COVID-19 positive staff and visitors who knowingly infected the vulnerable population. Oh, I'm sorry, no. Who unknowingly infected the vulnerable population. That's, that's who they're blaming. 
the uh, nursing home staff and visitors. Oh, by the way, visitors were banned from the facilities weeks before Cuomo issued his order <laughs> to send them to the nursing homes. Right. Yeah. So weeks, like almost three weeks before uh, he issued the order, that's when they were banned. Visitors were banned. So how are they actually spreading the virus into the nursing homes for the weeks and weeks afterwards? There was, quote, a high likelihood that COVID-19 positive visitors came to nursing homes, though the report said there is, quote, no specific data to support this assumption. And so ultimately, this is inconclusive. So the big takeaway line here is that it was the visitors and the employees that killed all of the old people at the nursing homes, but we don't actually have any data to support that conclusion, so it's really inconclusive. So we don't really have a reason. There's no proof of their assertion. Meanwhile, the staff of these facilities were overworked, having patients sick with a deadly disease shoved back into their care without the proper equipment and training to treat them, Bonshi writes. That's 100% on Cuomo, who chose to send those patients back into long-term care facilities because he completely failed at managing his emergency hospital capacity, some of which went largely unused, like the Javits Center as an example. Remember the big hospital ship that Trump sent to uh, the Hudson Bay, or Harbor rather? He sends this thing over there and they don't even use it. Right. Because he wasn't managing the system, which is the fatal conceit of all of these command controller, you know, progressive leaders. They think that somehow or another, like they can just manage it if we just have the right uh, the right experts and bureaucrats in places to make these decisions. They can control all of this. The report eventually tried to place most of the blame on the healthcare workers in the nursing homes. The report said that thousands of staffers unknowingly transmitted the virus in March. So uh, where does Cuomo think those healthcare workers got the virus from in the first place? Logic would tell you, probably, from treating the already infected patients that got dropped in their laps by the governor. But logic is not being applied in this report, which is nothing but a desperate attempt to distract and blame shift by the worst governor in the country. Now, to be fair, um, and this is, again, uh, redstate.com in a, a piece titled Good News, Andrew Cuomo investigated Andrew Cuomo found his disastrous nursing home policy was just great um, but to be fair uh, the the workers might not have picked it up from the, uh, the COVID positive patients that were forced back into the nursing homes right? It's possible they could have also picked it up on any one of the subway cars that the New York elected officials were not cleaning right? That's possible too like, why limit ourselves to just strictly looking at only one particular cause for the spread? Um, closer to home in North Carolina, near the end of this, uh, of this past legislative session, a bill was voted down that would have guaranteed visitation rights to families being blocked from visiting their loved ones due to COVID-19 restrictions. This is a piece at North State Journal by uh, A.P. Dillon. She writes, Senator Warren Daniel, a Republican from Burke County, was the primary sponsor of Senate Bill 710. This was called the No Patient Left Alone Act, and it was written to ensure visitation rights for hospital patients during a disaster declaration or public health emergency, which we are under. Right. So this would be limited to during uh, you know just this time frame when you've got this emergency declaration. The bill 
would have allowed hospitalized patients to designate one visitor to visit that patient's room during time periods in line with hospital visitation rules. So leave it up to the hospitals to create the rules for visitation, and then you get to designate one person to come and visit with you. As it passed, by the way, I saw a uh, there was a story that uh, there's uh, a couple and uh, married, and they're they're elderly, and I think he he's in a nursing home and she is not, and so because she hasn't been able to visit, she went and got a job at the nursing home so she could go visit her husband. Um, because this is one of the things that is never mentioned ever in all of the discussions about, uh, you know, how are we responding in the gov- you know, North Carolina governor, Roy Cooper and health and human services, secretary, Mandy Cohen, they come up and they do their press conferences and they never talk about the, uh, the depression, the despair, the loneliness that is affecting all of these folks in nursing homes right now. Right. They've been they've been shuttered up for what now, four months with no human contact outside of, you know, a couple of staffers and whoever else is in the home. They don't get to see their family. Right. They're elderly. And so they don't really you know, have uh, expertise or a level of comfort using a lot of technology platforms so they can, you know, Skype and Zoom and Google Meet and all that stuff. They, they they don't know how to do that stuff. And even if they do, like, do they have the uh, equipment to do so? And even then, that's not really the same. It's just not the same as seeing somebody and and having them come visit you. So that never is talked about, ever. Um, And it's tough. And I understand why, because there's no very good options here. But there isn't even a recognition that this is occurring and and times when when i detect that the governor or cohen is getting even close to touching on that subject it's usually just a throwaway line and move past it right there's not a real recognition that this is a devastating impact on these people's lives you know family members who can't be with their loved ones have you ever been at the hospital when a when, when a family member nears the end, you want to be there. And you don't want them being alone. And that's what we have forced upon all of these nursing homes, that they don't get to have anybody near them. And it's just incredibly sad. And the the psychological ramifications of what we are going through right now, yes, it's being played out in the streets with a lot of this insanity, Um but it's also going to have long-term imp- uh, implications for the people who survive uh, and after having watched family members die alone, pretty horrific deaths. Um, anyway, this No Patient Left Alone Act, the whole purpose was to allow there to be somebody who, you know, obviously, you know, sign a waiver, I'm going to be there, and that's okay, and then I'll have to quarantine myself, or you follow the rules of the hospital for the visitation. Um But as it passed through the House in the State General Assembly, controlled by Republicans, it passes through the House. The bill got watered down via a proposed committee substitute, according to the North State Journal article. This is NSJOnline.com called Hospital Visitation Issues Remain After Altered Bill Voted Down in Senate. So spoiler alert, it did not become law. So it goes through the House. It gets watered down via a proposed committee substitute, a PCS, they call it, proposed committee 
substitute, uh, which changed the language to make the visitation rights section align with existing policies. But that was those were the policies that the bill was trying to overcome. It passes the House, then goes to the Senate for concurrence, and it is just defeated handily six to 40. Senator Daniel, whose bill this was originally, indicated it would be better for the bill to come to an end rather than put into statute the current hospital policy that led to the outcry about visitation restrictions in the first place. It's just terribly sad, and I don't understand why the Republican leadership in the General Assembly uh, did that to the bill. But there are a lot of things I don't understand why elected officials do what they do in legislative bodies. I mean, what do I know? I'm just a little old podcaster, right? Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house. But you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old-school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and at oldgrouch.com. Last week, we were all expecting the governor to make an announcement about whether or not schools would be uh, reopening in some way, shape, or form in August, so we're about a month away from the school opening. And uh, you may remember at the time we played some clips and I focused on some of the language that the governor was using because, I don't know, it just it struck me as important for some reason. He said, I think it's important for us to get buy-in, as much buy-in as we possibly can across the board, uh, even uh, or before we announce a decision. That's going to have to be a lot of the local decisions made because school districts are different. Okay, so he was he was hinting around at this idea that, you know what, maybe a one-size-fits-all approach to schools might not be the best idea, which is weird because it's 
it's kind of been his idea on the statewide approach for everything else so far, but I digress. The uh, the schools are a different matter, and he, he said he, he's looking to get as much buy-in as possible. And I said at the time, huh. I, well, I, actually, I don't know if I said, huh. But I, I do remember saying at the time that I heard that and I heard teachers, specifically teachers' unions. That's who he's trying to placate here. He needs the buy-in of the NCAE, the North Carolina Association of Educators, uh, but don't call it a union. It's merely an association, even though it's a union. Anyway, uh, but they don't have collective bargaining rights, although they behave very much like in, in every other way, like a union. They're not a union, even though they they were formed at the NEA, the National Educators uh, Association Union, at their annual meeting one year years ago they're not a union okay so the ncae is who i suspected governor cooper was talking about he needs their buy-in because uh they get a lot of what we call in the biz earned media the ncae these are the ones that organize the red for ed so when you see your teachers well not anymore but when you used to see your teachers wearing the red shirts on wednesdays i believe uh, was when they would do it. I think Wednesday's Red for Ed. Well, I mean, it made sense. Like, Wed, Red, Ed. Anyway, uh, they would wear their te- their their red, and that was that was the teachers' union doing that. And uh, they were the ones who did the marches. They're the ones... And by the way, the social justice... I'm going to get into this. The social justice warrior camp, the uber-leftist, you know, cultural Marxist camp uh, inside the NCAE, they've now taken over during the last union elections. Sorry, association elections. They took over. So now they control the union. So the NCAE can cause some trouble for old Ray if he crosses them. He needs their support, particularly uh, in uh, you know a year where, let's be honest, this election cycle is going to be kind of wacky because uh, of all of the mail-in and absentee ballots and stuff and the COVID, all of it. Okay, so over the weekend, the North Carolina Association of Educators, the largest teachers union in the state, and one of Governor Cooper's largest and most powerful allies, okay, they are angry, according to ncivitas.org. Over the weekend, NCAE sent out an interesting email. Here's what they said, quote, by acting together, we have the power to determine the conditions in which we will return to in-person instruction. As frontline workers and families who know how best to meet our children's educational needs, we have the responsibility to ensure we do so safely. The email was a shot across the bow and clearly aimed at the governor. According to Civitas, parents are split, though, on school plans, with um, a lot of uh, the parents believing that the plans are actually uh, unworkable. This was also one of the problems that Governor Cooper was having last week. And by the way, we expect him to have some sort of an announcement this week about it, uh, whether to open schools. That's what he has been telegraphing. We shall see, though. Um, The polling on reopening isn't giving him the kind of guidance that any politician that licks his finger and sticks it into the wind relies upon to make challenging decisions in tough times. Uh, the polling indicates that like a third of parents uh, and, and you know, residents of North Carolina, I should say about a third of, uh, of folks are saying uh, reopen the schools and another third are like, uh, no, keep them closed, do the distance learning thing. And then you got another third that are like, uh, yeah, maybe do both. 
eh, maybe like a hybrid, right? So he's not getting a lot of clarity. Meanwhile, you got the NCAE saying that we have the power to determine the conditions in which we will return to in-person instruction. So they are emboldened, right? They know they've got some juice here. So teacher frustration is mounting, says Civitas. Up to now, the NCAE and other uh, education groups have kept the cracks in that support hidden from the public, but no more. Why else would NCAE be sending out emails saying, who decides when schools reopen? We do. Isn't that interesting? By the way, this is what you get, voters. This is what you get when you elect Democrats. Not to be overly partisan about it, but the teachers union doesn't get to dictate stuff to the Republicans. It's one of the things I've never really understood why these organizations throw their lot in with only one party. I mean, businesses and industry, anybody who hires a lobbyist, they know the benefit of backing both horses, giving money to both parties, right? But except the teachers union for some reason. I don't know why. Because because what happens is now you force me, even if I liked a Democratic candidate, and I have voted for Democrat candidates, by the way, um, but even if I like the candidate, if they are on board with the NCAE, I'm not going to I'm not going to vote for that candidate because the NCAE is insane at this point. They've gone insane. Here's the email they sent out. Everyone's saying that these are unprecedented times. But the crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and economic shutdown has exposed what we already knew. Privatizers and their supporters in our legislature have been starving our schools to death. That's, that's why all the schools are dead, by the way. Did you notice that? Yeah, all the schools are dead. It's, uh, it's not because the governor shut them down. It's the privatizers and their supporters. <laughs> we're, we're the reason. The people who are like, hey, you know what? Maybe instead of sending the kids in poor and minority neighborhoods to really crummy schools, how's about we give them some voucher money and let them pick a better school? And so we're the reason that the public schools are dead now. We've already been fighting, they say, for years to stop legislators from prioritizing corporate tax breaks over funding our futures. By the way, when they talk about our futures, they're talking about the teachers union. Remember, it's the teachers union. It's the association of educators. It's not the association of kids. It's not the association of people who put kids' interests first, right? It's it's the association of educators. Um, now vultures are circling as politicians push us to choose between our safety or our ability to make a living. Um, in other words, the very thing that like the private sector has been forced to do. This is what everybody else out in the real world has been dealing with. Um, I feel the need to point this out. Uh, the sentence that a person uttered to me many, many, many years ago, that person shall still remain nameless uh, for her or his own protection, um, and that is teachers don't want regular jobs. They want better jobs than everybody else. And every time I'm presented with stuff like this, it becomes readily apparent. You know, it really it really does. I understand. We went over this a couple of days ago with the 
uh, audio from Dr. Scott Atlas from the Hoover Institution, where he talked about infection rates among children and reopening schools and the benefit that schools provide in our society as a focal point for like everything. And the transmission rates and infection rates among kids is like zero. So I understand that there are adults that are going to be concerned about their safety. So once again, why don't we focus on the vulnerable people who cannot go to work for whatever reason? Let's figure out a way to make sure that they can still do something, right? Something for their paycheck. Because I'm not entirely on board with this idea of, hey, let's just give them their pay and they just take the whole year off. Because I suspect uh, a lot of folks might might get into trouble, might be up to no good. And the reason I say this is, I don't know, maybe it's like a month and a half of street demonstrations by people who are pulling in $900 a week, right? Way more than I make. They're making more on unemployment, and then they're out protesting and rallying because they got a lot of free time on their hands. So um, I'm just throwing it out there that maybe we shouldn't pay people to not work. Back to their letter. NCAA says, we say there's another way. Public school workers and families have already facilitated a monumental transformation to ensure children continue to learn. Schools and families stay connected, and the millions of urgent needs that we meet in our schools every day continue to be met in the middle of a global pandemic. This is such a crock of garbage. Like, do you think kids are learning right now under the the distance learning thing? Right? What did Dr. Atlas say last week up in uh, his area? It's like half of the kids aren't even dialing in for their for their uh, for their classes for their lessons. Like this idea that everybody is affluent enough to have the technology required to dial into these classes. And even then, like somehow or another, that that's going to be an optimal learning environment for kids of all ages. It's funny because these are the same people who were ripping on the the um, the digital learning uh, initiatives that Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest was doing. Remember that? For years, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest has been trying to uh, usher in, and, and uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mark Johnson, as well, they've been uh, trying to promote this digital learning stuff, uh, also, you know, uh, technology in the classrooms and all that stuff, while pointing out it is not a substitute for teachers and in-person instruction, but there is a place for this stuff. And they have been getting such blowback from who? From these people, from the very same people. They've been getting this opposition that, how dare you introduce these things? Oh, yeah, you have a private company coming in and doing this, you privatizer. Right? Now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, hey, you know what? I can do this distance learning thing. I, I'm perfectly happy staying at home and reading from a textbook to a bunch of kids. I know I'm oversimplifying, and that's offensive to good teachers, but I'm sorry. I really am. I, I have always said... I believe teaching is more an art than a science, and I want to pay good teachers, great teachers. I want to pay them six figures. I want to pay them. I want to pay them a lot of money because you can you can impact a kid's life forever. But I refuse to be held hostage and forced to pay bad teachers the same amount of money. So until you're willing to divest yourself from the teachers' union that forces me to have to agree to pay everybody the same amount of money, then here we are. And you're going to get lumped in with everybody. And I'm sorry, but that's how this is going to, this, that's how this goes. Um, they say the world has learned what we already knew. Every public school worker is essential. Caregivers can't go to work. Businesses can't run. Our economy can't function if our schools aren't in 
operation. Yeah, it's kind of amazing like that, isn't it? When the government requires you to go to the schools and then builds its entire society around the government institution of schools, and then when the school closes, oh my God, look at all the impacts. Who knew that it was such a vital part of everybody's daily lives? Well, I mean, except like, you know, everybody... You mandate this operation, and then you use the fact that everybody is relying on it as some sort of evidence that we need to do whatever you say. It's ridiculous. It's it's grotesque. Anyway, that's the, and then they say, by acting together, we have the power to determine the condition in which we will return to in-person instruction. Uh, as frontline workers and families who know how best to meet our children's educational needs, we have the responsibility to ensure we do so safely. Uh, and then they uh, promote that they've got a uh, they got two sessions coming up, uh, two video sessions of the uh, organized 2020 Racial and Social Justice Caucus. <laughs> who, by the way, that's the crowd that now controls the NCAE. Oh, by the way. Um, I'm old enough to remember when the average teacher pay was a number that was useful and instructive and illustrative of how Republicans hate teachers and educators and public schools and children, particularly minority children. And that's why they uh, that's why they don't want to pay teachers any money. And it's uh, the proof is in the NEA's annual list of teacher rankings for average teacher pay. Uh, Democrats and progressives and the media, but I repeat myself, they uh, used this number for years and years and years because we were at the very bottom, right? When Republicans took control of the General Assembly in 2011, uh, after the Great Recession had occurred and Democrats had spent wildly and and uh, they blew billion-dollar holes in our budgets because of it, there was no money for teacher pay raises, so the Democrats shut down all the pay raises. Uh, they furloughed teachers and stuff, and then Republicans take over and they start digging us out of this uh, structural deficit spending model that Democrats had built over a century. And as they start doing that, and they're reducing various tax rates and such, they start doing teacher pay raises. And what we heard at the time was not enough money, not targeted to the right people in various years. Because, by the way, the, the Republicans gave pay raises Every single year they were in charge. I think they did six pay raises. Um, and so they've done pay raises every single time. And they targeted first young teachers and then they did uh, older teachers. And they, they tried to redo the entire compensation scale and structure. And they tried to entice teachers to abandon the the uh, the, the tenure system for a merit system. And anyway, uh, throughout all of this time, when the Republicans were doing all of their uh, reforms, and by the way, this is what... Uh, led to a lot of uh, opposition from Democrats and the media, again, I repeat myself, is because Republicans have a different philosophy when it comes to funding education, right? They they had a different approach, right? The goal is the same. This is something Democrats never understand and the media never assume the best of intentions among these Republicans. Um, they assume that they don't like public education and they want all of the kids to suffer and be stupid. And uh, and so from there, they, they judge all actions and policies rather than approaching it like, oh, they have a different idea about what works. What's the best way to get a good education? What's the best way to fund a system? What's the best way to promote an educated citizenry, right? Uh, so, in, and, and by the way, there is a reason for this. Right. There is a reason for this, and it has to do with Marxism, because this is where the Marxism is being nurtured, is in these schools. Right? You have these educators, and you have systems that are designed to educate kids in a certain way. 
And Republicans are not really crazy about that idea. They would like there to be options. They think there are better ways to educate uh, kids that uh, are in failing schools. Anyway, so there's, um, there's this fundamental difference in approach. And over the years, as the average teacher pay has ticked up and North Carolina moved from 47th in America and it moved up the scale and as it kept getting higher and higher and higher you know what happened last year last year we hit i forget what the exact number was i want to say it was like 23rd or 24th or 26th something like that we were like right in the middle of the pack but north carolina had gone up like 20 something spots right all the way into the middle of the pack and and last year when this happened we then start hearing the argument that average teacher pay isn't really an instructive or relevant metric. That's what we started hearing from the teachers unions and, uh, or the NCAE here in North Carolina, because the NEA puts these numbers out. The, the National Teacher Union puts this out, this ranking. And they use it as a way to force state governments and local governments to raise teacher pay. If you're in the bottom, it gives those unions in the bottom, in those states, it gives them fodder, just like it did in North Carolina. It allows them to say, we're ranked 48th, right? They can say that and everybody's like, oh my God, we're ranked 48th. Even if it's not a a good comparison, like you could live in a very low cost state. Like, for example, um... You look at like cost per, uh, uh, the, the cost to educate kids, uh, the per pupil expenditures. You know who's, you know who's last in that category? It's like Utah. But Utah kids, they do very well in school, right? So it's not necessarily a, a good comparison. All of these data sets are just, you know, individual points along the, the way. And so now we're getting this, this plea for uh, recognition of the nuance of t- average teacher pay. Um, North Carolina has the second highest average teacher salary now in the, in the Southeast. Only Georgia has a higher rank than us. According to the annual rankings and estimates study released by the NEA, North Carolina's average teacher salary is 54682 54682 average teacher pay. Now, does that mean that every teacher makes that? No, it does not. That puts it 30th in America, 30th. We are second in the Southeast behind Georgia, which uh, their number is 60,578. So, uh, oh, fun fact, though, if you do a uh, if you run this through an analysis like Dr. Terry Stoops at the John Locke Foundation does, where you factor in the cost of living, our number goes up to 26th. The cost of living uh, adjustment would put us, if you were, you know, if all things being equal and the cost of livings are standardized across all of the country in every state, that 54682 salary is basically the equivalent of a $57,000 a year salary. And the median income in North Carolina is about 48 grand. Okay. Again, these data points are no longer relevant, instructive, or illustrative of anything, at least according to the uh, Democrats, the teachers' union, and the media. Meanwhile, the State Board of Education voted last week to postpone approval of new K-12 through social study standards so that more work can be done on them to address 
how to teach difficult topics like slavery and racism. This according to the Greensboro News and Record. Quote, go back with a fine-tooth comb and refine even more so with equity in mind how we want these learning targets to reflect the demands of this current moment and the demands of so many stakeholders and communities that are historically marginalized to make sure that we're producing more socially conscious and empathetic individuals to help create a better and more perfect union, said State Board Member James E. Ford. The State Board periodically reviews and revises the standards used in different subjects. North Carolina is consolidating U.S. history in high school from two courses into one class in order to make room for a new personal finance course required by state lawmakers. This was uh, one of Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest's big push a couple years ago, and uh, I remember talking with him about it at the time, saying, why would we have to eliminate a history class in order to make this happen? Can't we keep a history class? But again, I'm just a podcaster. What do I know? The state board heard earlier from Matt Schialdone, a teacher at Middle Creek High School in Apex, who said that he's run into these problems with teaching the, quote, hard history. The students said North Carolina schools are failing to teach about important events that affect students of color. Kala Keaton, a rising senior at Middle Creek High School, said she only recently learned about such things as the 1898 Wilmington Massacre when white supremacists violently overthrew the city's multiracial elected government and killed dozens of black people. Uh, by the way, they left out the word Democrats there. Uh, the When the white supremacist Democrats violently overthrew, uh, overthrew the city's uh, multiracial elected government of Blacks and Republicans, the fusion party. Anyway, uh, DPI is now proposing including an introductory statement in the social studies standards saying teachers are expected to include diverse histories, experiences, and perspectives of racial, ethnic, gender, and identity minority groups. Examples of groups cited in the statement include African Americans, indigenous populations, women, Latinx, hate that word, Asian Americans, Middle East, and North African Americans, and the LGBTQ plus community. DPI says it will recommend schools use non-traditional social studies content that discusses things such as Black Wall Street in Durham, redlining, school desegregation, the Black Panthers, and deportation of Mexicans. North Carolina public high school students have to take four social studies courses before they graduate. Uh, they got to take world history. They got to take American history. They got to take civic literacy and they got to take economics and personal finance. Uh, that change now is not going to go into effect until the 2021, 2022 school year. All of this kind of dovetails into a piece by David Harsanyi at national review headline, destroy the public education system. And uh, I'm not going to have time to get into it for this episode. I'll circle back around on this, though. But I have it linked up at the Patreon page uh, with Pete's Prep, where I put all of the content up that I'm going to be discussing. Um, he says, though, that it's largely a left-wing propaganda machine that funds Democrat politicians and entrenches racial segregation. So you got that to look forward to. But before the episode ends here, 
there's this story out of Los Angeles. A major teachers union is claiming that the reopening of schools in its district cannot occur without several substantial policy provisions in place, including a moratorium on charter schools and the defunding of police. (laughs) United Teachers of Los Angeles, 35,000 members uh, in the school district of L.A., made these demands in a policy paper it released saying the organization calling on uh, local authorities to keep school campuses closed when the semester begins August 18th. I mean, yes, they had some recommendations, you know, like small groups of kids, wear masks, protective equipment, redesigning classrooms, but also they said we won't go back to work unless we get... uh, The police departments defunded and charter schools closed. They said police violence, quote, is a leading cause of death and trauma for black people and is a serious public health and moral issue. Uh, The document calls on authorities to shift the astronomical amount of money devoted to policing to education and other essential needs such as housing and public health. Um, Oh, yeah. They also demand that uh, there be a federal Medicare for all program instated. Uh, They also want more taxes on wealthy people and a federal bailout of the school district. Right. So just a couple of things. No big deal. And finally, I got an email from NC who said, Pete, I appreciated your explanation of why news is bad is basically a business model. You should reinforce that more. I see too many of my right-leaning acquaintances who get hooked on the news and they take a view of the world that echoes what they see and everything is the apocalypse. Right. Fear motivates people and that that motivation is used to get clicks. It is used to get viewers and listeners. Fear is a motivator. Always keep that in mind. Um... Also, one thing about the virus I heard or read months ago is that at the beginning of any outbreak of any virus, it'll kill the, quote, low-hanging fruit first in the population. That was the speaker's term, not mine. If you are one of the vulnerable and exposed, you may already have been sickened or killed by it. Um, Also, he says, I heard you say you don't like people. In your never-ending quest to make your audience smarter, you should refer to yourself as a misanthrope. Make us look it up. And he says, I don't believe teachers are afraid to go back to in-person teaching. I think they and the union are using it as leverage for more money and less work. That's a wrap for the episode. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.